0: Welcome to the new Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Mole, and each and every week, I bring you cutting-edge information, transformational stories, and exclusive interviews with the leading experts in the area of blood sugar, diabetes, and metabolism. My goal is to cut through the confusion by making complex concepts simple and to give you practical strategies to improve your blood sugar and optimize your metabolic health. Thanks Thanks for joining me and I hope you enjoy this next episode of the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. This episode is sponsored by Sweet Life Nutritionals. If you're looking for the absolute best supplements Handpicked and created by yours truly, Dr. Brian Mole. You'll find them at sweetlifenutritionals.com. Our products contain the highest quality ingredients, and the formulas are evidence based and backed by science for blood sugar, metabolism, gut support, adrenal health, and detoxification, as well as specific formulas for cardiovascular health, eye health, kidney support, and immune function. Visit sweetlifenutritionals.com and use the coupon code PODCAST to save 10% off your first order. Again, that's sweetlifenutritionals.com. It's Dr. Brian Mull, the diabetes coach, and back with another expert interview today. I have with me a new friend. That is Dr. Casey Means. She is the co-founder and chief medical officer of Levels Health. And I'm really excited about this conversation and what Levels is doing to help reverse the metabolic crisis that's happening all around the world right now. That's, uh, I think we share a mission there, Casey, to do that. Um, I really want to see the way diabetes care is practiced. I want to see that totally change. I'd love to see more of a coaching model and I'd love to see more of a technology-driven model. So I think we're probably on the same page there, but um really excited about what you're doing and for this conversation today. So welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And I would I would definitely say we're very aligned on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. So Uh, let's, uh, I guess let's just do a quick intro, um, on what levels health is and what you guys are bringing to a diabetes, or uh, I shouldn't say diabetes care really, because what we're looking at is, um, People before they get to diabetes, you know, we want to help people who have blood sugar dysregulation or just focus on their health and wellness, learn more about their blood sugar regulation. So, um, you know, what are what are you doing or what are you bringing to people who are more interested in uh, looking at their blood sugar a little bit more closely?
1: Yeah, so we're doing exactly that. So we are helping individuals understand their blood sugar levels in real time and understand how all food and lifestyle decisions are affecting our glucose. So what we do is we pair a wearable device called a continuous glucose monitor um, with intelligent software that lets you pair that data stream that's picking up this internal biomarker glucose 24 hours a day. Pair it with data that lets us understand how that glucose is changing in response to how we're living and what we're doing so that we can work towards really a personalized dietary and lifestyle strategy for ourselves that keeps our glucose more stable, um, less spiky in a healthier range. And the idea is that by generating this metabolic awareness by wearing um, this wearable, this, this wearable that tells us you know, really granular, continuous insight into our key metabolic biomarker that we can really make smarter choices that kind of both uh, improve our current performance, improve our current wellness and how we're feeling day to day now, but then also keep us out of trouble uh, in, in the long term. So that's what we're doing at Levels.
0: Okay, very cool. So I guess uh, first and maybe the most obvious question is, you know, CGMs have been used for many years with type one diabetics, oftentimes paired with an insulin pump for good insulin control um, and blood sugar control. Uh, I think more recently, we've seen more people with type two diabetes using them. um, If, uh, you know, if there's a good reason, if they're on insulin, or if they're if they can convince their doctor to recommend one for them and get it covered or not uh, pay for it themselves. But what you're talking about is something that's a bit different. You're talking about actually using this Uh, for someone who's just interested in wellness or health, or I'm not in love with the term, but sort of biohacking, understanding the body, understanding what's going on with your blood sugar uh, throughout the day. So I guess uh, the big question is, you know, why would someone who doesn't have diabetes want to use a CGM?
1: Yeah, so... By understanding our glucose levels, we can actually really unlock a lot of benefits for our lives. Currently, you know, I I like to say variability in our glucose responses throughout the day. So big spikes, big dips, you know, up and down, up and down. That really translates to variability in our in our lives. It can make us, you know, our mood kind of change and, and kind of go up and down. It can. Um, our alertness, our energy, our athletic performance, our mental clarity, all of these things really mirror on to what's going on in our glucose levels. The more we can kind of stabilize that by making choices that keep our glucose more stable, the more we can see those benefits in our, in our day-to-day lives. And then bigger picture by choosing a dietary strategy and a lifestyle strategy that helps us keep our glucose more stable over time, we may be able to, um, you know, avoid some of these long-term metabolic conditions that these chronic illnesses that develop really over the years and decades of having glycemic instability or glucose variability. So, you know, right now we're dealing with really the largest health crisis in the modern world that we've ever seen, which is the metabolic health crisis in the United States recent research out of University of North Carolina suggests that 88% of American adults uh, have in, have evidence of metabolic dysfunction. Um, and that was defined in that particular study as um, as elevated glucose levels, um, cholesterol levels that were out of the optimal range, um, or um, issues with weight. Um, and so 88% of Americans are not falling into the, the optimal category of that. We also have 128 million Americans with diabetes or prediabetes, So creeping up to about 40% of our country with a diagnosed metabolic issue. And the reality is, is the vast majority of these conditions are totally preventable. They are not something that we are destined to get. They are something that occur over time, over years and decades from um, our diet and our lifestyle choices, primarily in regards to what we eat, how much we're sleeping or how little we're sleeping Um, how much we're moving or not moving, uh, the way we respond to stress, um, the micronutrients in our diet, our microbiome, and the environmental pollutants we're exposed to, um, things like cigarettes and um, exhaust and pesticides and other environmental pollutants. So those things together, our exposures to those things over our lifetime, um, really contribute to the vast majority of developing these conditions. So you can imagine if diet is a really, really big piece of that, and in particular, how much um, how much our blood sugars are being affected by our diet, um, having some awareness into that through continuous glucose monitoring can really give us a leg up in not getting, you know, running into the potholes of diet that are so easy in our, in our normal, modern Western world. Um, with our food system these days, well over 60% of the calories that the average American is eating are from ultra processed foods, meaning, you know, foods that have, ultra-refined grains, ultra-refined sugars. These things just have a huge impact on our blood sugar. A lot of these things, you go into the store, they're marketed as healthy. Um, And so to be able to just cut through all the food marketing, all the diet wars, and just have an objective data stream that's telling you exactly how a food is affecting you, it's really empowering. Um, You know, what I want to avoid is walking into the doctor's office 15 years from now. And, you know, one year they say you're totally normal and healthy. And the next year they say, Oh, you're pre-diabetic. You don't need to have that surprise if you're monitoring this for yourself and in control of it yourself. So, um, that's kind of the big picture. And then the second piece is that From a a behavior change standpoint and from making consistent positive choices, having closed-loop biofeedback has been shown to be a really helpful strategy in that regard. So a lot of people are wearing their wearables these days. I've got my Fitbit and my Whoop on, and that's closed-loop biofeedback about heart rate and about sleep and about exercise. But we've never, ever had that for nutrition. We've never been able to take a bite of food and say, immediately, this is how it affected my body. It's all lagging indicators like a cholesterol test six months from now, or maybe the next day, you're 0.5 pounds heavier than you were the day before. But it's very difficult to create a one-to-one relationship between what you're eating and what happened to your body. So glucose monitoring, being the only continuous biomarker, internal biomarker we can measure at home, it is the first time we've had that that one-to-one biofeedback between what we're eating and what we're doing. So those are sort of the, you know, the main reasons why it can be really useful for someone who doesn't even have a metabolic condition, who's actually otherwise generally healthy, but who's wanting to both, you know, optimize their current life, optimize their diet, personalize their diet and really set, set themselves up for um, long-term understanding of how food and lifestyle is affecting their body.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, and I, I love uh, the study you referenced <clears throat> about metabolic dysfunction. We have we we uh, call this metabolic dysfunction spectrum, and a lot of people don't realize, but there are many many conditions that fall on that spectrum. I would even put uh, many. Uh, forms of osteoporosis or osteopenia on there because of the hormonal balance of that, put uh, like hypothyroidism on there because of the effects it has on metabolic health, certainly PCOS, Uh, in women tied to insulin resistance, and uh, oftentimes imbalances in in hormones, pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, you know, all of these obesity, uh, certainly stroke, uh, Alzheimer's, erectile
1: dysfunction, depression. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. These are the trunk of that tree being metabolic. The trunk of that tree,
0: right, exactly being metabolic dysfunction. So, Um, a lot of people don't realize how broad that tree is and how many things that, um, you know, our our energy metabolism and fault, you know, faults in our energy metabolism can have um, can can affect. So yeah, that's a it's a really important point. And I think understanding at least glucose um, metabolism and how certain foods, certain behaviors, activities affect our glucose levels on a almost on a moment-to-moment basis can be incredible biofeedback, as you said, and, and uh, really motivating. So what are some of the uh, things that you've seen using this technology that affect blood sugar that are maybe some of the most surprising things, like whether they're foods or activities, behaviors, what have you noticed there?
1: Oh, there's so many interesting trends that have that I've seen that have come up. I would say One of the big ones, I'll name several, but one of the big ones I've seen is that what is typical for a standard American breakfast is usually just an absolute glucose bomb. And even things that are marketed as healthy often are throwing people off You know, first thing in the morning. So one of the big ones we've seen affect a lot of people is oatmeal. Um, Many, many people are rising 80 to 100 points in their glucose levels, um, which is huge uh, after just eating a normal cup of instant oats in the morning. And what's interesting is that these are marketed as heart healthy. Um, you know, you see the Quaker oats box and it says good source of whole grain, high fiber, heart healthy food. Um, but the reality is this is a, this is a processed form of oats and, um, it's just turning into glucose for a lot of people in their bloodstream and causing just gigantic glycemic variability. Um, and what's, I think what we often see with a big, big glucose spike in the morning is that it's kind of hard to recover throughout the rest of the day. You're kind of up in a lot of people, you know, tend to sort of then be on a little bit of a roller coaster because what happens is your body releases a ton of insulin, the hormone that helps you take up that sugar out of the bloodstream into the cells to be either used or stored. Um, And that insulin, when you have a really big glucose spike, that insulin um, surge can be of such great quantity that you actually. You, you suck all that glucose up in, into the cells um, and you overshoot. And that's called reactive hypoglycemia, where you basically overshoot your baseline after the meal. And that can lead to feelings of low blood sugar and sort of that irritability or that post-meal slump or that kind of being tired after a meal, which I think a lot of people feel mid morning after breakfast, sort of like, Oh, I need my second cup of coffee. Oh my gosh. I can't wait for lunch. Um, kind of hanger hungry, whatever. Um, we see that a lot with breakfast. So, you know, people who are having big glasses of juice for breakfast, oatmeal for breakfast, toast, lots of fruit without paired with um, protein or healthy fat. A lot of these things are causing people to go on these like morning roller coasters. So um, breakfast is a big one. Um, I would say other interesting things we've seen. um, I mean, one is really about uh, food balancing. So, peop- w- what I would say is a big takeaway is never eat a naked carbohydrate. So, I call a naked carbohydrate essentially a food that's like primarily carbohydrates without um, having any fat or protein or fiber. Um, this would be like certainly having a glass of juice, but also just like having a piece of bread all on its own or having a piece of a big piece of fruit all by itself, primarily a big carbohydrate load. So in those situations, pairing with fat fiber and protein, and especially having fat fiber or protein before eating the carbohydrate Mm -hmm. can have a really big impact on how much you spike from that carbohydrate. So, you know, if I'm going to have an apple now, um, I'm always going to pair it with almond butter and some chia seeds. Uh, that's going to be both fat protein and fiber by having those two foods with it. So it's really going to change the way I respond, um, to that food. Another thing we've seen come up a lot is that um, both sleep and uh, sleep deprivation and stress just have a really a much bigger impact on our glucose than I think most people would expect. Both sleep deprivation and stress can raise hormone levels in the body like cortisol and other catecholamine hormones, kind of what we typically call stress hormones. And these hormones can tell the liver actually to change glucose processing. They, the stress hormones actually tell the liver to dump glucose into the bloodstream because stressors usually mean that our bodies like, you know, evolutionarily, when we were stressed, our bodies thought we need energy to like run from a threat or something like that. So it would dump glucose into the bloodstream in order to feed your, your muscles with sugar, essentially to evade whatever threat was around. Um, Well, in our modern era, we're not actually running from threats. You know, it's typically like a psychological stressor that we're dealing with, like an email or a text message or a honking car or whatever. So we actually don't, that's sort of maladaptive now to have that response where our liver is mobilizing glucose for us. But the reality is we're a lot of us are under chronic low grade stress all the time. So you can imagine that pathway kind of being constitutively active and kind of contributing to elevated glucose levels throughout the day. So um, we've seen a lot of people who have given talks or, you know, had some stressful event and glucose has gone up like 40, 50 points just from that psychological activity. So really tapping into our mind, body practices, diaphragmatic breathing, learning how to activate the parasympathetic nervous system and, and not sort of be in that sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight mode as much as possible. Um, that can be really helpful. And the same with sleep, just quantity and consistency of sleep can really help keep your stress hormone levels under better control. So that's something we've um, seen a lot. And then the last yeah, I'll, thing I I'll, uh, would, uh, yeah. I'll add
0: just real quick before you, before you do the last one, I'll add another layer onto that too, because um, we've seen that effect certainly as well, but also um, the effect of those behaviors, poor sleep, sleep deprivation, and stress. And how your body regulates blood sugar uh, after you eat changes also. So, you know, we know that, uh, you know, a poor night of sleep can cause cortisol release and can make us more insulin uh, resistant. Stress can do the same thing. But it can also affect how we process our food. So I've noticed that a lot of people will have a different Reactions to the foods that they eat after a poor night of sleep. So it's not it's not just sort of in a fasted state. It's even in a in a post-brandy or post-meal state. So something uh, something to consider too. If you're checking your blood sugar and saying, I ate the same meal yesterday and it caused a you know a thirty. 30- point increase and today a 70 point increase what's going on you know sometimes there's other factors that are influencing your physiology and the way you process that food in a way you know the the, the insulin sensitivity glucose tolerance those types of things so um you know it's uh it's bad enough on its own but then it, it sort of makes the foods the you know the foods worse too unfortunately
1: yeah, I would just follow up on that. It's so true. And there was actually a really interesting study that was done that looked at sleep and sort of responses to food. And what they did was they categorized a large group of people by either short sleepers or regular, like long sleepers, they called them. And the difference was actually in only one hour. So the short sleepers were people who got on average 6.5 hours of sleep per night. And the long sleepers were 7.5 to 8.5 hours of sleep, which just a pin in that, that, that is considered the optimal amount of sleep for metabolic health is about seven and a half to eight and a half hours. Actually, more than that is problematic for metabolic health, and less than that is also problematic. Um, so that's like seems to be an optimal window for on average. Um, what they found in this study was that when both of those groups, the short sleepers and long sleepers, were given an oral glucose tolerance test, which is a test where you take in 50 or 75 grams of straight glucose in a drink form, and then your blood sugar is checked for two to three hours after that test to see sort of how you responded to it. They found that both groups responded the same to the oral glucose tolerance test, but the short sleepers had to produce 50% more insulin to keep those levels the same, which means that they were more insulin resistant compared to the other group. And why that's important is because, and I'm sure that you got into this with many other people speaking at the um, speaking, but insulin resistance is really the process. It's the, it's the spectrum towards, you know, overt metabolic dysfunction. And, um, when our bodies are exposed to just, you know, excessive glucose day in and day out, they're having to produce, you know, more and more insulin to respond to all that glucose that's coming in into the bloodstream to take it out of the bloodstream. And over time, the cells get numb to that. Um, insulin that's having to be secreted. And that's the sort of the start of insulin resistance where the cells have become a little bit numb to the signal and the body has to overcompensate and produce more insulin to basically drive that glucose into the cells. And that's really the early part of, Mm -hmm. of insulin resistance. And we can do that as healthy young people for years, if not decades before our glucose actually starts to look unstable. So, um, there's actually research that suggests that insulin resistance and elevated insulin levels happens thirteen years before we start seeing glucose levels really change because we're we're just basically overcompensating. Unfortunately, we don't test insulin frequently in um, conventional practice. A lot of longevity focused or functional medicine physicians do test insulin levels because it is such an early, marker, um, you know, of potential problems down the road. But in this study, they did check them after the oral glucose tolerance test, and they showed that the people were secreting 50% more to essentially keep those glucose levels seeming normal. So, um, so that's why we really have to dig deeper and, and think about how, you know, things like we're talking about sleep and stress might be kind of screwing up the machinery under the hood of what's happening with, with glucose processing. But yeah, I can't, can't really talk enough about about the impact of sleep on our insulin sensitivity and our metabolic health. It's, it's a, it's a key one. And I sort of say, Diet is necessary, but not sufficient to have optimal metabolic health. You really have to have these other things dialed in as well: the the stress management, the cortisol levels, the the sleep, the exercise, the micronutrients. What, what about exercise
0: patterns? Do you see, um, you know, do you see surprising or interesting or consistent uh, blood sugar patterns after different types of exercise or in different people?
1: Yeah. There's some really interesting things about exercise. So one is that basically if people take a walk after a meal, even if it's just for 15 minutes, their glucose response is almost always lower. Um, just get, and this is like the easiest tip for, for better glucose control is like, and I, you know, recommend it to families, especially after the meal, put the dishes in the sink, go take a 15 or 20 minute walk and then come back just like a habit after each meal. It's Many cultures do this, um, and I think we've kind of lost that art. But it can have a, a huge impact on how we we process the meal. Um, and I think when you think about what is a walk, really, when we're walking, even if it's just across the room, we're activating huge muscle groups. Like we have to to move your quads, your hamstrings, your calves. You know, everything has to be activated to just move. And all of those muscles need glucose to to function. And so it's a glucose sink. It's just taking up that glucose. The interesting thing about muscles is it's one of the only uh, tissue types in the body that actually doesn't need insulin to take up glucose. It actually has an insulin independent mechanism of just muscle contraction can take up glucose. So it's almost like a freebie way to use and process and take up glucose without actually um, causing, you know, an insulin release. And so, so basically moving after meals really important. Um, the second thing I would say that's worth noting is that high intensity interval training actually has a paradoxical effect on glucose, but not in a bad way. So what a lot of people see is that even if they're fasted and they do a high intensity interval training workout, so about above about 80% VO2 max or max heart rate, they'll actually likely see a glucose rise on their continuous glucose monitor. Usually like can be anywhere from like 20 to 50 points or so that the glucose rises. And the reason for that is because HIT training actually is a stressor for the body. It is like an acute hormetic stress that causes you to release stress hormones. Um, you know, these short intense sprints, the body perceives that as something's wrong. You know, we need, we need to release stress hormones. So you're actually getting that liver dump of glucose, like dumping glucose into the bloodstream to feed your muscles. But in this situation, you actually need the glucose because you're using your muscles. And so it's, it's actually part of that advantageous process. And it's, it's, we know that high intensity interval training is actually associated with strong increases in insulin sensitivity and overall glucose control. So the way I would look at that glucose elevation is not as a bad thing. And actually in our software, we, we let people mark if it's a hit training workout so that they can actually exclude that spike from their overall scores. Um, you're clearing out your liver glucose basically, which is not a bad thing. As we work through our stored liver glucose, which is glucose change called, called glycogen, that's actually a healthy thing to be doing. We want to be you know clearing out that liver glucose using it in the muscles because then what happens is as we deplete the glucose in our liver and kind of get into a low glucose state in the body, our body has to switch then to burning fat and that switch is called metabolic flexibility where we basically there's not you know not excessive glucose in the body we're always going to use glucose first if it's available in the body and when we kind of lower the tank so to speak by doing something like hit training we then have to switch into you know fat burning for energy and the more we can put our body in a situation where it has to do that essentially a low glucose environment switch to fat burning, the more we become metabolically flexible and become adaptable to kind of use different energy substrates based on different availability. And that's a really positive state for the body associated with longevity. So, um, so all that is to say that that spike with high intensity training, not necessarily a bad thing. And it's the last thing I would say about exercise. That's interesting. There's kind of research coming out, um, about this, some papers actually really recently that working out in a, in a fasted state or actually in a lower glucose environment can actually be really positive for our metabolic health, similar to what I was just talking about. So when you take people and you put them on the exercise bike or the treadmill first thing in the morning, when they haven't actually eaten anything yet, they essentially haven't had any calories for eight to 10 hours and they work out in that state, they're having to do more of the fat burning. They're burning through their stored glucose and This is actually good for long-term metabolic outcomes. So it's something I think we're going to be hearing about more and more. You used to think like got to have a protein shake or a power bar or banana before our workout. But I think we're starting to see a shift in that ideology. It's not something I would recommend people just like, you know, they hear this and then tomorrow they go and do a fasted workout. It's not going to feel good. It's going to feel uncomfortable. And you, you definitely want to be safe and talk to your doctor about it. But it's more about slowly over time, experimenting with maybe lowering the amount of carbohydrates that your body's getting before a workout and just seeing how your body starts adapting. But I think it's important to remember with anything in the body, it's all about slow adaptations. You can't jump into being a really strong fat burner overnight if your body's used to having glucose on board all the time. So just really slow and steady and making sure um, you're talking to your doctor about these things. But I think we're going to hear more about Fasted workouts as time goes on.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good strategy for a lot of people, and uh, I've seen that in my clients as well with the hit training. They'll get an initial bump from the from the release of glucose, like you said, from the from the liver, and um, and you know the muscles are of course utilizing a lot of their glycogen stores also during the training, and then um, usually within an hour or maybe two hours, their blood sugar will drop either back to baseline or sometimes even lower if it was a little bit high to begin with. So we'll see sort of that, that rebound positive benefit from HIIT training, um, a little bit down the road. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. And people will different people respond different ways. I'm sure you've seen this too. You know, some people will get a pretty significant glucose rise from, you know, an even a, even a moderate, uh, you know, to high intensity exercise, others seem to have um, less of an effect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's, there's definitely a personalization here, everybody's a bit different. But um, I, I, I want to follow up on one thing. Uh, you were talking about dietary strategies, and you, were, you, you mentioned oatmeal, which we, we actually talk about um, in the program. Because it's so often recommended to people with di- to with diabetes or you know obesity or high cholesterol or high triglycerides to to, to as a way of lowering uh, those numbers, but uh, unfortunately, the wrong type of oatmeal especially creates a a huge glucose spike and and uh, and blood sugar roller coaster. But um, I love this idea of personalizing diet. So, uh, you know, there are there's a lot of confusion. What's the best diet to eat? Is it a plant-based diet? Is it a keto diet? Is it a low carb diet? Is it a, you know, some sort of Mediterranean style diet? And I really think, you know, uh, we talk about this idea of eating to the meter, um, in diabetes education. And so with a CGM, you can take that really to obviously to another level and really, Um, monitor your blood sugar response closely and change it, change your diet according to the, to the feedback you're getting. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and some of the benefits you see with personalization of diet based on the
1: technology. Definitely. Yeah. So the personalized personalization piece is really fascinating because what we've learned over the past five to six years in research coming out is that actually No two people respond to carbohydrates exactly the same way, really. Um, There was a paper that was published in 2015 in the journal Cell called Personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And it was really a landmark paper out of the Weissman Institute in Israel. And what they did was they put continuous glucose monitors on 800 healthy, non-diabetic individuals, and they gave them standardized meals. And then they, they watched what happened. And based on what we know about the whole concept of glycemic index and glycemic index charts, we would think that if everyone's eating a standardized meal, their glucose would go up the exact same amount because we think of food having an inherent an inherent property of how much it affects your glucose levels. If it's a piece of bread, it's going to affect your glucose this much. But that's not at all what happened. Amongst the people who got these standardized meals, their glucose, some people, their glucose didn't go up at all. Some people, it went up 100 points and everything in between they also gave people two different snacks, a cookie and a banana. And what they saw was that two different people could have equal and opposite responses to those exact same foods. So person A could be flat in response to a cookie and go up a hundred points in response to a banana and person B would be the opposite flat with a banana, go up a hundred points with the cookie. So it's really like, you know, and for one of those people, the bananas is going to be a potentially an okay metabolic choice. You know, like they're they're not having a big glucose spike, they're not having a big insulin spike, and the cookie would be terrible. So it's really about knowing what works for your body. The study actually went further and then looked at why do people respond differently. One of the big predictive factors was microbiome composition. So essentially, our microbiome, they process indigestible carbohydrates and turn them into byproducts for our body that we can use. And based on the composition of that microbiome, people seem to actually be digesting food differently. So we're, we're really in the era of microbiome and metabolic health. They are should really always be mentioned in the same paragraph because it's such an important deterministic factor of our metabolic health and um, something we really need to be thinking about. So, so all that's to say, personalization is really important for diet because people respond differently. And we kind of don't know unless we have a little bit more insight. The second piece of personalization is that um, you know you might love a certain diet or diet ideology, like you like being vegan or you like being keto or you like being paleo. Um, and you're going to kind of go off what the guidelines are for that diet. Keto has sort of a strict set of um, you know rules or suggestions for what to eat to stay in a ketogenic space um, state, but you might not know exactly which aspects of that diet um, are actually going to work for you to keep you in ketogenesis. So by using a glucose monitor, you can actually test what's going on and then optimize whatever your dietary preferences to make it just most healthy for you. So we were talking before you know we recorded about how I'm I'm Whole Foods plant based, so I eat a fairly moderate carb diet and. By using levels and continuous glucose monitoring for the past two years or so, I've really learned which carbohydrates affect me, which don't, how to pair carbohydrates effectively with fat, protein, and fiber um, to to minimize their impact. And there are certain foods that I just have eliminated because even pairing them with fat or protein will not reduce the spike. For me, those foods are uh, grapes and um, large quantities of sweet potatoes, large quantities of corn. If I have too much of those things, my glucose is up to like 180 or so, and I, I, there's very little I can do to kind of pair them. But other foods, certain other grains, you know, certain types of potatoes don't seem to affect me. So um, it's really about zeroing in on these diet philosophies and figuring out what works best um, for your own body. For some people the oatmeal, for instance, like this is a perfect example. Someone might, their doctor says you should eat oatmeal because your cholesterol is high and you need more fiber. Well, and I would argue oatmeal is not the best fiber source out there. I would much more go for like chia seeds or beans or legumes or or nuts, whatnot, but it does have some fiber. Um, So you could say, that person who hears that recommendation could go and buy some instant oats and have it in the morning with a glass of juice, and um, and that could be their breakfast juice and oats. And that is going to cause most likely a massive glycemic response. But with a continuous glucose monitor, you could say, okay, I'm going to add walnuts and chia seeds, and I'm going to add, you know, like instead of adding some fruit that's high glycemic, maybe add some like low glycemic berries and just really like doctor it up with some fat protein, um, and other healthy micronutrients, avoid the juice, um, and maybe have it with a side of avocado and eggs and then all, and use steel cut oats and not instant oats. And then all of a sudden you might see, instead of going up 80 points on my glucose, I went up 12 points on my glucose. So you can learn that that is actually an objectively better way to eat oatmeal than the the you know the one that you just sort of walked into the store and thought was a good option. So it's really about cutting through some of that marketing and figuring out how to make it just best, get the best you can out of food without the collateral damage. And as you can tell from this conversation, it's not about restriction. It's not about just stop eating. It's about how to thoughtfully think about food and the context of your body of what food is going into that stress, that sleep, that exercise. Um, it's, it's just really creating holistic environment for processing gluc- glucose effectively. Yeah, so
0: powerful. So two quick questions about, um, CGM on more of a wellness population, and then, uh, want to talk a little bit about your software with levels. Cause I think that's a really powerful component as well. So, uh, the evidence the data is is sort of mixed and unclear about these things that's why I'm asking and i'm not sure how much of this data you get to see but in a in a non diabetic population what are uh, what's sort of the range of glycemic excursions that you see um, so do you see like you mentioned an eighty point jump from grapes is that something that commonly happens with like the way you describe naked carbohydrates in a non-diabetic population is there an average you know uh, or sort of a, a range there of 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 those of glycemic excursions or that change between you know pre and post meal blood sugar that you see
1: yeah so Based on, and and it's interesting, this population of people without diabetes using continuous glucose monitoring, it hasn't been studied very well. So we don't have a real, there is not an answer or consensus in the scientific community of if I have a CGM on and I'm non-diabetic, what should my glucose levels look like over a 24-hour period? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge Mm -hmm. hole in the literature. And we're actually sponsoring research at Brigham Young, University of South Florida, Thomas Jefferson University, soon to be Yale, Um, To actually examine this exact question, because it's really just, it is literally a hole in the scientific research. Um, What has been done is there are quite a few studies that have been, that have put CGMs, continuous glucose monitors, on healthy people and just watched what happens to their glucose. Um, That's not necessarily saying it's the optimal range, but it's at least giving us a picture of like, if just average healthy person, no metabolic conditions, not overweight, puts a CGM on. What is it looking like? And what that's found is that the vast majority of people spend their time between 70 and 140 milligrams per deciliter on their glucose. And in some studies with younger, healthier populations, it's really spending greater than 90 percent of your time between 70 and 120. So it's fairly tight range. Um, and uh, based on the, uh, the Diabetes Federation's recommendations, really don't want to go above 140 too much after a meal. Um, that's not to say that going up to 180 or 200 now and then, it's, it's, we certainly see it, you know. but that's usually because of a specific food choice that happened to have a really large excursion. And typically a healthy person is going to you know mobilize the insulin and that's going to come right down within about 2 hours. But it's not something we want to be doing over and over. So I would say just generally speaking, you know, trying to stick between 70 and 140, rarely ever go above 140. For me I try try and stay between 70 and 120 110 all the time. Um for me that's not very it's not very hard to do when you've actually had a CGM on. You just know how to, you know, Pair foods properly. It's 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 actually hard to kind of go above one ten mm-hmm. or one twenty. Um, but but generally speaking, yeah, I would say stay yeah, that's in below really 140. That's really yeah. helpful.
0: The other thing is the uh, you know, there's something called the dawn phenomenon, which a lot of people watching this will be familiar with. It's this uh, morning elevation in glucose from the counter regulatory hormones like cortisol and adrenaline released in the morning, and then there's usually some insulin resistance component there too in type two diabetes and an in insulin deficiency in type one. So you get this dumping of glucose from the liver. And I'm curious if you see that phenomenon with non diabetics as well. Do you see uh, higher blood sugar levels in the morning? And, and if so, uh, do you have any idea sort of what the percentage is or, or how uh, common that is?
1: Yeah, we see it in a, a good proportion of people who are non-diabetic where basically they wake up and their glucose immediately goes up even without eating or coffee. And it's really the same. Well, it's it, there's some of the similar physiology of what's going on with anyone. Um, really the body's when you wake up, when you open your eyes, you release a lot of that cortisol to basically get you out of bed. You need actually a little bit of stress hormone to wake you up. And so that's going to mobilize some glucose for people with insulin resistance or really, um, you know, farther along the metabolic health spectrum um, that insulin resistance coupled with that cortisol in the morning is going to lead to a more magnified dawn effect, but we definitely see it. And I would say, I don't have the data in front of me, but, between five to ten points, maybe someone started the morning at a fasting glucose of 75, maybe go up to 80, 85, and then you know, come back down. That's not atypical. Um what is kind of interesting is that often when people have had sleep deprivation or they're particularly in like a difficult, stressful work period, often we'll see that Dawn effect is like larger. Um, and I think that probably has to do with just sort of baseline hypercortisolemia or mm-hmm. a little bit of baseline insulin resistance, transient insulin resistance related to lifestyle stuff. So I've definitely seen that where if I'm not getting good sleep or am jet lagged or something like that, my Dawn effect might be 15, 20 points as opposed to just nothing or zero or five points. So it's, it's I see it as sort of an indicator, yet another indicator on continuous glucose monitoring of where I'm sort of at that day mm-hmm. in terms of my yeah. metabolic health. I like to see a, a zero essentially, like no, mm-hmm. no dawn effect in the morning.
0: Really interesting. Yeah. That's uh, pretty much what I suspected on both accounts, but that's, uh, it's interesting to have some confirmation on that. So thank you. Uh, so let's talk about the software component of levels. Cause I think that's, um, that's, you know, a really powerful piece. So we get the data. Um, a lot of CGMs come with their own, you know, monitoring software that you can use on a smartphone or that's uh, included in the device or the, like the pager like device that they wear, but um, you've got your own app that I guess talks to the CGM or somehow coordinates. Can you talk about how that works and some of the benefits that, you know, people would get from, from using that app, the levels app?
1: Yeah. So the levels software pulls in the continuous glucose monitoring data it also pulls in other data streams. So Apple Health, Google Fit. Um, so you're getting the sleep data and the heart rate and the, the fitness data pulled into that as well. So you can start to make correlations um, between those things, which I think is quite helpful. And then really what we do is we're all about turning that data stream into a mechanism of behavior change. So that what that means is helping you understand it, how food is relating to glucose excursions, and sort of what to do Um, better next time. And so one thing we've done is really moved away from the raw glucose numbers. Like It's really hard to know like what exactly does it mean if this meal made me go from 85 to 120. And we actually boil it down into simple scoring systems. So we have what's called zone scores and metabolic scores. And zone scores are essentially like a one to 10 rating of your meal, 10 being the best possible meal in terms of minimal glycemic response, one being like a very poor metabolic response. And we take a lot of metrics associated with that CGM curve and put them together to create a score. So for instance, it's not just how high you go after a meal that matters in terms of giving you a little bit of a picture of the impact. Like That is part of it, the delta from baseline to peak. But it's also how long did it take for you to recover? Like How long did it take you to come back to baseline? Where did you start? What was your baseline? Um, We put all those things together into a score. So at the end of the month of using continuous glucose monitoring, you'll have this log of maybe 50 meals that you logged and you'll have a score for each of them and can start to understand, like, I want to eat more meals that are like my eight nines and tens on my scores. And I really want to avoid the stuff that's in my like one, twos and threes. Um, so we do that. And then we give a, a, A more um, holistic score called the metabolic score, which gives you really a picture of your whole day. So variability, mean glucose, um, excursions, and kind of wraps it up into one score. Um, And then there's just a deep educational component is the app. So we're working with actually a lot of the speakers who you've had, people like Ben Bickman, Dom D'Agostino, who are on our medical advisory board. Um, many other academic professors who are just working with us to create this content that basically helps people understand and contextualize this data stream. So education is yeah, a big real, really
0: powerful. And uh, yeah, education is so important. And I think that leads to, you know, motivation And the data and the feedback leads to motivation. People can make better decisions when it comes to their diet and lifestyle to improve their metabolic health and and get out of this metabolic crisis like we talked about in the beginning. So if people want to find out more about Levels Health and, uh, you know, possibly signing up with the service, um, starting the process, what's the best place for them to go? How do they do that?
1: Yeah. They, you can go to levelshealth.com. We're actually in a closed beta program right now. We are, we're not fully launched. So you can sign up there for the wait list, which will get you on our newsletter and get you on the wait list. And then as spots become available in the beta program, you know, we can, um, you'll be invited to join, um, but aiming for a full launch later this year. Um, but definitely sign up um, there. You can also follow us at levels on Instagram and Twitter, highly recommend people in the beta program are like posting a lot about the, what they're learning, the experiments they're running. And it's really, really interesting to see what people are learning and doing. And I think helps set you up to kind of make the most of your experience when you do, um, when you do the beta program. Um, I'm at Dr. Casey's kitchen on Instagram and Twitter, Dr. Casey's kitchen. Um, I write a lot about plant-based metabolic health. So I would love to connect with anyone on any of those platforms. Okay. Perfect.
0: Well, I think this is uh, really important information, and I appreciate you being here sharing it with the audience, and I encourage people to go to levelshealth.com, get on the waiting list there if you're interested in working with levels to uh, you know, get a CGM and learn a little bit more about your blood sugar regulation. So Dr. Casey Means, thank you so much for being here and sharing the time
1: with us. Thanks so much for having me.
0: All right. Thanks again for joining the Mastering Blood Sugar podcast. Hey, if you haven't already, please do me a favor and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Podcasts. If you want more helpful information, check out my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Dr. Brian Mole, And make sure you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Mole. If you like this episode, share it with a friend or family member who could really benefit And I'd love if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. Thanks again for listening. This is Dr. Brian Mole, and I'll see you back on the next episode of Mastering Blood Sugar.